This is episode 177 of That Shakespeare Life. There is a complete lesson pack that goes along with our show today, including a history guide, worksheets, and lesson plan you can use to bring this show into your classroom. You can download a free worksheet from this pack that lets you practice your own 16th century shorthand at home right now from the show notes of today's episode. You can also get the entire lesson pack that includes all of the other resources for putting this into an official lesson plan for your classroom as a member of That Shakespeare Life. Join the membership today at castycash.com slash member. That's CassidyCash.com slash member. Hi, I'm Lucy Skeeping, broadcaster, performer, and director of The City Waits. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. His shorthand was not only capable of being written down fast enough to take live transcription, but that it was also secret, so handy for diaries or sensitive correspondence. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. When William Shakespeare was just 24 years old, a man named Timothy Bright would introduce a system of writing called charactery to England, setting off a wildfire of shorthand manuals, methods, and training where people were flocking to learn this new symbol-based system of writing that allowed the spoken word to be captured verbatim in real time. Notes and letters from philosophers and travelers in the late 16th and early 17th centuries remarked that the fascination and mastery of shorthand was a skill seen internationally as uniquely something for the English language and specific to the British Isles. The skill was so popular in England that it would even travel across the Atlantic with the British colonists and find a place in the foundation of the New World, with the system of tachigraphy created in 1626 being used by American President Thomas Jefferson as late as the 18th century. While many of the surviving copies of shorthand we have today exist on Egan paper, we have extant records that indicate shorthand was also useful on wax tablets, writing tables, and even with the graphite pencil. Since these alternate writing materials are designed to be temporary, their existence is something we only know about today from references to them in other non-shorthand writings like early modern plays, including Shakespeare's two references to charactery in Julius Caesar and Merry Wives of Windsor. Here today to help us explore the evolution of charactery and shorthand from newfangled idea to valuable career over the course of Shakespeare's lifetime is our guest and author of All the World Writes Shorthand, Kelly McKay. Kelly McKay is a graduate student in the history department at Harvard University. She received her undergraduate degree from Princeton in linguistics and started studying English shorthand systems during her Master of Philosophy in Early Modern History at St. John's College, Cambridge. Kelly's research is primarily focused on the history of ideas of language in early modern England, and her dissertation centers on conceptions of writing, language, and written language in that same context. Her recent article in Book History, titled All the World Writes Shorthand, The Phenomenon of Shorthand in 17th Century English, 
England, explores the evidence in printed books to trace the preponderance of shorthand and attitudes towards the art throughout the 17th century. Find out more about Kelly McKay and links to her work in the show notes for today's episode. Hello, Kelly. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Kelly writes that after Timothy Bright invented shorthand in 1588, several other inventors stepped up to add their own version of shorthand with this general system of writing catching on very quickly. Kelly, what need was being met by the system of writing that allowed shorthand to be so popular so fast? Yeah, that is a great question to start with. And I'd answer it with sort of two prongs. I'd say that part of the answer is in what shorthand promised to do. And then the other half is what shorthand actually allowed you to do. So from the very beginning, the manuals in which shorthand was taught made really, really big promises. So Timothy Bright, whose manual, as you say, came out in 1588, said that his shorthand was not only capable of being written down fast enough to take live transcription, but that it was also secret, so handy for diaries or sensitive correspondence. And not only was it secret, it was also had the potential for universal communication, that anyone in the world, no matter their native language, could learn the system and use it to communicate with each other. And, and that's because Bright's system, unlike the 17th century systems that followed that were more phonetically based, uh, Bright system wasn't. It was not based on meaningful properties of English. It was just a system of signs that corresponded to a set of words. And there were many, many problems with that feature of Bright's writing system. Um, the, the characters or the, the signs in which you denoted words had no relation to the meaning whatsoever. So it was quite a burden on the memory. So although the qualities of speed and secrecy and universal communication really resonated with a lot of people and made them very, very excited, there was, <laughs> there was a gap between what was promised and what was delivered. And so in a way, many of the manuals that follow are trying to, to sort of fill that gap and provide better systems of a shorthand or, or a secret or speedy writing. Sounds like most technology we have that comes out today. It takes a few iterations. Yeah, absolutely. When you look at 17th century shorthand manuscripts, the text is entirely illegible. Contrary to popular expectations, shorthand is not a series of abbreviations for standard English words. As you mentioned, it's it's not phonetic. And instead, it forms its own language. Kelly, given the fact that visually an untrained person would be unable to read shorthand, what was the distinction between ciphers or coded messages and Timothy Bright's system of shorthand? Right. So, so that's a, a layered question. I should add at the, at the get-go that the claim that shorthand constitutes its own linguistic medium is very much my own claim and not one that one will widely find in, in the literature, not that there's much literature on the subject to begin with. But the distinction between a shorthand and a cipher is, is a complicated one because they have a lot in common. Shorthand, as I mentioned, is very associated with secrecy and you can use shorthand in many cipher systems. But the, the fundamental difference is that an early modern cipher at, at its most 
bare bones and traditional is basically a substitution system. So you will write out a message and then you will go letter by letter and swap that letter for something else. So maybe you write A for B, B for C, C for D, and on and on and on. So the coded message looks like gibberish, but then if you have a key, you can convert that back to the original message. And the cipher is sort of a an intermediary that's never itself meant to be read. It's just sort of a, a secure intermediary medium. Shorthand is not that at all. If you know a shorthand, you can read a shorthand. You can't just crack it with a key. Every system of shorthand writes included, um, but the phonetic systems of the 17th century in particular will have very complicated rules that are particular to the system. It is not just a matter of swapping out letters for other letters. So many of these systems do write phonetically. And so you're only writing down meaningful sounds as opposed to all of the letters in a given word. And they're, they're often different ways of representing sound that aren't just writing down a character. So for example, in phonetic shorthand, you don't write down vowels. You, you can, but the more traditional way of writing them down is by representing or by writing a consonant in a particular place around the preceding consonant. So it's indicated by a positionality, not by a, a written sign. I guess in sum, the, the point is that, that a shorthand system is really just a different kind of writing that is operational in and of itself. It's not just a, a temporary conversion technique. So the difference between, you know, writing in another language versus like invisible ink, it's not designed to hide a message that would otherwise be written in English. It's designed to write in its own form of language. Uh, Absolutely. There's a great example, actually, of ciphers and shorthands in the movie National Treasure. If you've ever watched that, they use a key to crack a code and open up a cipher. So to see kind of the distinction there, what Kelly's mentioning, we'll link to to that film and some examples of shorthands so you can compare in the show notes for today's episode. So make sure you stop by there to see that. Kelly's work references the Czech philosopher John Amos Comenius, who first visited London in 1641. He remarked that the English had, quote, discovered an art which has now come into vogue even among the country folk, that of rapid script tachygraphia, which they call stenography. Almost all of them acquire this art of rapid writing, end quote. Kelly, Comenius's comments make it sound like stenography might have been uniquely English in reputation across Europe. Was this kind of shorthand popular in the 17th century outside of the British Isles, or was this art considered specifically British? It was considered specifically English, I would say. And and by English, I mean the English language, not the English nation. Um, You find shorthand in the British Isles. You also find shorthand in colonial America. But it is one of the big mysteries of shorthand because There are many strange writing innovations that occur in England and also on the continent, but shorthand really just doesn't make it outside of the English-speaking world. And it's not for lack of trying. There are a few scholars. Francis Lodwick is a big one. He's associated with the Royal Society. Um, Like Comenius has a lot of reach outside of England. And he creates a shorthand based off of an English one that's designed for Dutch and it has no traction. <laughs> Why this is, I, I don't know. And, and it continues to 
sort of nag at a lot of scholars who who work on on shorthand. I've heard various suggestions of why it remains such an English phenomenon. One of them is that because in shorthand you're reducing language down to its sounds, because English orthography has so many extra letters, perhaps that means that you inherently have less to write down. That sounds convincing against an example of Italian, say, which is very phonetic, but I mean, French has tons of letters in its orthography that are not necessarily sounded in an efficient way, and shorthand doesn't take off there as well, although we we know that various French writers knew of shorthand and described it as a specifically English phenomenon. We've mentioned shorthand, charactery, and tachigraphy as specific methods of shorthand that were present, but Kelly, you've alluded to there being a lot of systems of shorthand that were coming up during Shakespeare's lifetime. Exactly how many methods are we talking about? It's a hard question to answer because unfortunately we don't have a ton of evidence from Shakespeare's lifetime. As soon as he dies, we start to have quite a lot. <laughs> so <laughs> up until let's say 1700, there are approximately 30 systems that we know of concretely and that that we can sort of flyably say existed. Before that, we have Bright's system, um, which came out in 1588. After him, a man named Peter Bales, who was a writing master known for his writing prowess. He published two books that were adapting Bright's system in 1590 and 1597. He called his system a brachigraphy. Um, But he sort of backtracked in 1600 because none of these systems really worked. (laughs) They were also burdensome on the memory. And so he published in 1600 a manual that is part of his canon, but is really not a shorthand so much of a system of abbreviation. Then in 1602, we have a man named John Willis who publishes the first phonetic shorthand. We don't have anything from him again until 1617, but the manual from 1617 purports to be the fifth edition of his work. So we can perhaps assume that between that period in the early 1600s, there were a few manuals by him which were printed. And and John Willis, the the first phonetic shorthand inventor, was the major influence for everyone that followed. And so were other people experimenting with his system as soon as it came out, very possibly, but we just can't say for sure. Many of the surviving copies of shorthand that we have today are written with ink on paper. Kelly, in the past on our show, we've discussed other methods of writing that were popular for Shakespeare's lifetime, including writing tables, wax tablets, and even graphite pencils. Do we have any records to indicate whether shorthand was used in any of these other writing methods as well, or, or was it only an ink and paper method? So ink and paper was definitely the most, well, It appears to me to be the most standard because it's what we still have in the largest quantities. So I've seen shorthand written in ink on paper in commonplace books, miscellanies, recipe books, um, in the margins of printed books. One thing to note about shorthand is in its early stages, in particular, it was very small, so very good for writing in cramped margins of books. I've also seen paper books that were entirely in shorthand, often books of the Bible or Psalms, that sort of thing. And they can be quite elaborate and and quite beautiful. And then I've also seen shorthand written on paper 
that becomes waste paper. So notes that are repurposed as as end papers in books, or in one case, the lining of a of a box. I've also seen shorthand written on parchment, usually not very nice quality parchment, sometimes very high quality parchment, but that because parchment is more expensive, you can assume that it would be a little bit less usual. I've seen it in pen, I've seen it in pencil, but for things like writing tables, wax tablets, I've never seen it, but I also wouldn't expect to. It makes a lot of sense to me that someone practicing shorthand and or using it to take temporary notes would choose to use a temporary medium. But the challenge for historians then becomes a lack of material evidence. We can't know that something didn't happen just because we don't have a record of it, but nor can we claim with any confidence that it did happen. I might also add that shorthand manuals that describe or that provide suggestions on how you should practice shorthand will usually suggest paper. They'll they'll describe making yourself a little choir and stitching it very simply and then just carrying that around and having it on hand. But that does not mean that shorthand wasn't written on anything else. In her work, Kelly explains that one of the main ways to investigate the place of shorthand in Elizabethan society is by examining references to those methods of writing found in surviving manuscripts, which were not themselves examples of shorthand. For example, Shakespeare uses the word charactery in two of his plays, Julius Caesar and Mary Wives of Windsor. The context of those references tell us something about the place of charactery in Shakespeare's lifetime. Kelly, when you were exploring printed books to mine these references to shorthand found there, how many of those references were found in plays specifically? Right. So in the article that you're referring to, just to give a bit um, of context, I, I looked through the collection of early English books online, which is a great resource that has digitized and made text searchable about 92% of surviving titles printed in the British Isles and in British North America up until 1700. And I was looking for mentions of shorthand to try and piece together what it was in the public consciousness, how people talked about it, if they talked about it. And in total, I found about 2,000 cases where a word meaning shorthand, um, shorthand itself or one of its synonyms, was used. And those appeared in about 500 different titles. And of those, 27 were plays, which is a small percentage. It's, you know, about five or 6% of the full corpus, but is pretty comparable to um, the number of plays that were published in proportion to other published materials. I, The vast majority of the references I found were in religious texts, but also the vast majority of printed materials were themselves religious. So I'd say that it was pretty um, pretty proportional to the, the range of materials available. Was charactery the term used most commonly in England when Shakespeare was writing about it? I know today we call this method of writing collectively as shorthand, and that could mean any number of these specific methods. But was that term established for this method of writing in the early 1600s? No, no. That, and that's a, that's a really important thing to be aware of. And when I was doing my text searches, I had to use lots of different synonyms because shorthand as a term wasn't actually used until 16, what is it? 1638, I believe. So well after Shakespeare's life. 
when Shakespeare was writing, the terms used were character as as you as you said, also brachigraphy, which is the term that Peter Bales used, and stenography, which continues to be used today as the most technical term for what we call shorthand. Um, other terms to watch out for um, were, as, as you've mentioned before, tachigraphy. Stenography is not to be confused with steganography, which is actually an, another term for cryptography. But the association between the terms alludes again to the association between shorthand and ciphers. The word charactery starts to, to wane in the 1620s and shorthand really comes to the fore as the dominant term in the late 1630s. And by then it becomes just the unmarked term to refer to all of the systems by many different inventors who call them many different names. How have you been able to decipher the surviving manuscript examples of shorthand today? Are there any surviving manuals that tell you how to learn shorthand? There are. There are many manuals, and those are what I concentrate on. The question of decipherment is perhaps less of a question of how and more a question of if, because there's a lot of work that needs to go into a proper full decipherment of a text that is completely in shorthand. So far, I've when I've done deciphering, it's been annotations in shorthand manuals when I can be pretty confident that the manual is the same, is, is presenting the same system that is being used. In one case, I deciphered a, a psalm and that was just sheer luck because I guessed what it was and I happened to be right. Uh, but there are a lot of challenges with deciphering shorthand manuscripts. The, the biggest is that in the 17th century, a lot of the systems, well, all of these systems develop out of the 1602 manual by John Willis. And many of them have the same characteristics and the same letter shapes, although those letter shapes don't always correspond to the same letter. So it can be very, very challenging to identify what shorthand is even being used. And if you do know, then you're faced with the second big problem, which is that shorthands are designed from the get-go to be very personalized. So if, say, you're a lawyer, you are encouraged in many of the manuals, not in all of them, but in, in the majority, to develop special abbreviations for legal terminology that you would need to use. It, same if you're a natural philosopher or a physician. Whatever words you need, the system is for you, and, and you're supposed to adapt it to to your interests. And if you talk to people today who have learned shorthand in the past, they'll maintain that that's true of them too, that because the point is just to write fast and to write effectively, you should use whatever, whatever tools are available to you personally. And so any act of decipherment becomes less finding the manual and working from there and more about figuring out how an individual uses the system and what quirks they themselves develop and use. Have you found in your research a consensus or perhaps a theme to indicate that shorthand was more popular in a particular sector of society than another, or was it being applied by everyone during Shakespeare's lifetime? So during Shakespeare's lifetime, it's hard to say. If, if we can use the full 17th century as 
as a template, which is which is what I can can speak to and to try to do. Um, it is astonishing, actually, how widespread shorthand is. The manuals point towards an audience of men, but men use it, women use it, rich, educated men use it, less well-educated men use it as well. So an example would be um, the, the most famous shorthand writer of the 17th century is Samuel Pepys, who wrote an entire diary, his entire diary, in shorthand. And it's become it's been deciphered and become a very valuable resource for 17th century historians. So he used shorthand and, and knew it very well. But he also had a servant named William Hewer, who also wrote in shorthand. So master and servant alike, because shorthand offered so many different advantages because it could be used as a trade to, to take down speeches, et cetera, um, or as an act of private writing. It, it appealed to a lot of different people for a lot of different reasons. Kelly writes that by the 1640s, shorthand and mastery of it had become, quote, as much a technology as an art, end quote, and that knowing shorthand formed a skill to be monetized, not unlike what we think of today as trade school, where you learn to be a carpenter, a welder, or a plumber, to then establish a valuable career around this new skill. Kelly, when Shakespeare was referencing character in his plays, was shorthand still considered a newfangled idea and this brand new technology people were figuring out how to use, or was it already established as a valuable skill that people were using? Very much a newfangled idea when Shakespeare was writing, um, though it's worth saying that shorthand continues being thought of as a newfangled idea for decades and decades after its first invention. But when Shakespeare was writing, it was character associated with Bright was still very much a an unusual, a strange form of writing. And, and in the cases that Shakespeare uses it, this very much comes out. So in The Merry Wives of Windsor, he uses charactery to refer to the language of fairies. So sort of this erythral, otherworldly, strange code, not cipher, but, you know, in, in Julius Caesar, he uses the word charactery in reference to the face. And, and that connection actually has a lot of staying power. Throughout the 17th century, there are references to the shorthand of the face, sort of as a, a parallel to the face being an open book. It's just a, a metaphorical sense that, that you can read someone's thoughts in their expression or in their like furrowed brow. And, and so it's very much a... Um, an idea of a of a writing that is not like normal writing or a, a system of communication that's not quite in the human domain yet. That's that's the sense that I get from from how Shakespeare is using the term. Where did someone who wanted to master the skill of shorthand go to learn? Were there trade schools set up to teach someone how to master their chosen form of shorthand? Of sorts, um, not not schools in, in the way that we would think of them now, um, but there were people who taught shorthand, usually the same people who invented systems and published them. Oftentimes, the title page of a manual will include an address and an appeal. If, if you want to learn more, visit me at this street in London and, and you can have private lessons. I think personally, and this is um, a bit contentious at times in the literature, but I think the first port of call would be acquiring a manual and starting with that. 
And if you have a teacher as well, um, then they would often encourage you to still keep the manual with you and, and use it as a reference book. Uh, but there were all sorts of learning, all sorts of ways of learning shorthand. So uh, another scholar who, who works on shorthand in the colonial in the colonial setting in America is Teddy Dulwich. And, and he studies students at Harvard who seem to have copied manuals by hand um, to sort of distribute them among the community. Um, and it, it seems to be something that students would do, not necessarily as a matter of course, but, but not uncommonly. You could also learn from a family member if they happen to know it, um, from a friend. There's no particular evidence that I've found from the 17th century. Um, a lot of the scholarship, actually, for how shorthand was taught comes a little bit later in the 18th or 19th century. Um, and it's all very, very spotty. But whenever you can find, for instance, a text that has dialogue, written dialogue between a learner and a teacher with little annotations saying, like, write this mark different, that's always a, a bounty. Actually, Charles Dickens taught shorthand um, to one of his family members, and, and we have his his teaching manuals, and, and that's a pretty fantastic resource. That is a fantastic so resource from Shakespeare. <laughs> well, certainly, but certainly a nice example of what it did look like to teach something like that. I know we would love to learn more about this topic and see things like Charles Dickens notes on shorthand. What are some of your favorite books or resources you can recommend we use to learn more? Yes. So <laughs> the historiography of shorthand is kind of its own weird story. The bulk of shorthand scholarship happened in the 1880s. And that's when many of the, the big histories of the subject were written, um, though the, the latest was written in the 50s. But, but these books tend to be very aggrandizing of shorthand and not necessarily the most accurate. And so for, for people who are interested in learning about shorthand today, if it's the English context that sparks your interest, I'd, I'd really recommend it may sound unusual, but there's a descriptive bibliography of the collection of shorthand manuals that Samuel Pepys had, which was assembled by a scholar named William Carleton in 1940. And it, it's a great resource because it, it has a description of each manual with a description of the system and also a biography of the inventor. So you get a really quick cursory glance at its early development through its first hundred or so years of existence. More recently, I'd also recommend uh, on the subject of Dickens, a book that came out in 2019 called Dickens and the Stenographic Mind by Hugo Bowles, which is about Charles Dickens and his learning and teaching of shorthand and, and how it informed his literary mentality. It's not quite early modern, but it's a really interesting look into uh, into the subject of shorthand. And as I said, we have unusual materials of Charles Dickens. And he's a person who's elicited enough studies that we know a fair bit about him. So it, it's a it's a really nice glimpse into like a micro history of shorthand. 
Those are excellent resources that we will link to in the show notes for today's episode, along with the links to the other resources Kelly mentioned. So make sure you go to the show notes to see all of this bonus history that we will put there. Kelly, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. Yes, I've I've thought about this and I've I've my mind first went to just as the books that are really long that would take up plenty of time. But I think that the complete works of Shakespeare and the Bible would would suit me very nicely in that respect. So what I'm gonna say instead is I, I just acquired a book called The Forager's Calendar, which is all about how to forage for food in the UK. And it's been a pretty fun activity during COVID. So I think what I'd like would be a a similar book, a foraging guide, but one that was specific to the the desert island that I'd be stranded on. I I I think that's a very practical and wise choice for sure. And it is always consistently funny to me that whenever I pose this question, everyone, so to date, everyone has assumed that they would be on their deserted island for a long time, even though <laughs> the context of the question, you could be rescued, you know, tomorrow, but no one, no one <laughs> ever picks true. like a small pamphlet. They're like, I need an encyclopedia. <laughs> War and peace. Yes, exactly. Well, it's a great time, I suppose, to to pick up War and Peace and all the other books we promised ourselves we would finish. Hmm. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Yeah, so I am about to embark on a, a full year of nothing but research, which I'm very, very excited about. I'm in the midst of my dissertation right now. So shorthand is a part of it, but in general, I'm studying strange writing systems invented in late 16th and 17th century England with an eye to linguistic conceptions that were that were held at the time. So I'm, I'm interested in how people are pushing the boundaries of language and playing with language and designing their own languages. So, so shorthand is a, is a big part, but I'm also looking at spelling reform programs, universal languages, languages for the, the deaf and mute. This is when gestural languages start to be a thing. So I'm not going to be writing for a little while, but I'm just going to be reading lots and lots of interesting pamphlets and manuscripts. That sounds like a great adventure and such fun to do, especially as that time period is when English itself was getting formalized and finding all of its definitions. So I know you'll enjoy diving diving into that. Thank you so much, Kelly McKay, for being here and taking us through the exciting history of shorthand during Shakespeare's lifetime. This has been a fun conversation. Thanks so much. We have packed a ton of extra history into the show notes for today's episode, including images and portraits and links to museum archives, so you can see and explore further the methods of Timothy Bright and even links to Charles Dickens and his notes on teaching and learning shorthand, so you can get a glimpse at what exploring shorthand might have been like for Shakespeare. You can also connect with Kelly McKay and read more of her research at CassidyCash.com slash episode 177. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP 177. 
If you're an educator of Shakespeare and early modern history who is looking for activities, worksheets, writing prompts, maps, diagrams, and other printable resources you can use to take the history you're learning about on the show today and easily incorporate not only the podcast, but all of these history resources into your lesson plans, then consider becoming a member at That Shakespeare Life. Members get unlimited access to our entire printable library of recipes, crafts, and games from Shakespeare's Lifetime that you can do at home or in a classroom with your students. And you can print the worksheets, history guides, and other resources as many times as you need, no matter how many students you have in your classroom. There's also a free 35-week syllabus we send to new members that links to all of the content in our members area, so you can complete an entire year of Shakespeare history and Renaissance literature right at home. This is particularly designed to be useful for our homeschool families here at That Shakespeare Life. Find out more and join us today at CassidyCash.com slash member. That's CassidyCash.com slash member. That's it for this week. Thank you for being here. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.